Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 158. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Before we get started, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, to like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan. If you want to find all those things, you go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you got all my social media buttons. And while you're at brianmcclanahan.com, go ahead and give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. And you'll get an email from me once or twice a week. Nothing overbearing, nothing oppressive, just a couple of times a week. And you're going to want to read what I write to you. One of the things you can also do at, if you're at brianmcclanahan.com to support the show, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. So anything you do contribute is appreciated. You can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. There you can sign up for free. It's always free to join mclanahanacademy.com. But, of course, I do have courses for sale, one on secession, one on Alexander Hamilton, and more courses are forthcoming. I should have one by the late spring, which is going to be so good, you're going to want it. And if you subscribe to McClanahan Academy, if you become uh, a, a user of McClanahan Academy, I will send out an email with some coupon codes and discount codes when that course is available. So you want to do that. You want to sign up for McClanahan Academy so you can get those coupons and get the discounts when the new course is available, hopefully by the end of May. I know I've been saying this, we're going to have it in April, but it's, some things have come up, so i got to push it back to May. Uh, also, you can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to redbubble.com. At redbubble.com, you can just search for my name, and you'll find all of my Brian McClanahan Show gear. You've got the logo on T-shirts, clock, stationery, all kinds of cool stuff. So go out and get you some Brian McClanahan gear. And, of course, you can always support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to Learn, T-R-U-E, History, LearnTrueHistory.com. And if you do that, you can get the best educational website on the uh, best educational website out there, the most bang for your buck. You've got about 20 courses now taught by great professors, including yours truly, Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, Brad Berzer. I mean, on down the line, we've got great faculty there. So you're going to want to get that too. Learn True, T-R-U-E, History.com. Okay, well, this particular podcast, this episode of this podcast, is actually uh, built off of a listener request, and I do that. And so in this particular case, I had a listener that emailed me and said, Look, Dr. McClanahan, I know you say that the states create the counties, but I got a buddy of mine that says, No, no, that's not the case. We had counties before we had the states. Uh, this is true, but I'll get into some of this in a minute, and uh, and and why that's really not important in this particular case. But I actually want to start. I'm going to talk about this issue of cities versus states, the role of federalism. But I want to start with a history lesson today. I want to start going back about a hundred years, because what I'm going to read that has to do with this particular topic is very important. Uh, and looking at how we should think about decentralization. So I want to go back 100 years, and I want to go back to the Russian Revolution. I want to go back to 1917 and talk about the October Revolution that led to the November Revolution of 1917 and what was going on there, because this is important 
when we start thinking about American federalism. So the Russian Federation, the Russian Empire under the Tsar, had sort of had local government. If you look at the 1906 Constitution for the Russian Empire, the Tsar was sovereign. Uh, he made all legislative decisions. He made all foreign policy decisions. He had an absolute veto. He was the state. There was some local government in Russia. You had uh, some cities that had some autonomy. You had other cities that reported directly to the Tsar. But essentially, the Tsar was, was the government, and there was no hedge between the people of the Soviet, or what became the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire. There was no hedge between the people of the Russian Empire and the Tsar itself. <clears throat> you had some provinces, what we would look at as provinces and cities, but all of those reported directly to the Tsar. So this was a, what you would call uh, a unitary state. So the central authority had all the power. When you get to 1917, and you start seeing some things in the way things develop leading up to the Russian Revolution, one of the things that happens is you have these organizations called Soviets. The Soviets controlled cities. Not necessarily directly through the government, but they were a, an entity that had a tremendous amount of control over the labor force and, by default, the populations of the cities. They were a de facto local government. Maybe not de jure, but they were de facto a local government. And when you get to the October Revolution of, of 1917, what essentially happens is these Soviets are going to take control of several cities in Russia. And by taking control of these cities, they essentially take control of the government of those cities. And they start putting pressure on the center from the bottom up. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why is McClanahan saying this is a bad thing? Because I talk about bottom-up government all the time. So these cities led to the overthrow of the Tsar. Uh, well, the Tsar was already gone, but led to the overthrow of the Menshevik-controlled Duma. The government, the Tsar was already out, and of course these cities uh, would then help lead to the bloodless, almost bloodless October Revolution, November Revolution of 1917, and then of course the Tsar would be uh, brought back from Siberia, where then he's supposedly going to be put on trial, but he's stopped by a local Soviet, and he's put under house arrest, and then later killed. He and his family were killed. So these Soviets, these local governments, essentially what became city governments, are very important in the process by which the Russian Revolution, the communist portion of the Russian Revolution, took place. We had the abdication of the Tsar in 1917, earlier in 1917, uh, and then you had the Mensheviks control the government. And the Mensheviks controlled some of these Soviets for a time, too. But the Mensheviks were the, uh, were the socialists who were uh, not as revolutionary as the Bolsheviks. They were more what you would call gradualists. They, they wanted to institute a, a communist or socialist state, but they would do it through the apparatus that was already there, essentially. Uh, of course, without the Tsar, the Duma became the primary. But just like in France, you had a unitary state in Russia. There wasn't really any local autonomy. There wasn't really any, uh, there wasn't any states, so to speak, of like you would have um, in other 
federal regions. You know, if you look at Germany, for example, before you had the unification of Germany in the 19th century, you had a very decentralized region. You look at Italy and how Italy was so decentralized. Even, even during the period after consolidation, you have a tremendous amount of decentralization, or at least push for decentralization in Italy from the northern part of that country. Uh, when you talk about England, even though England is not necessarily decentralized, uh, the custom and precedent of England certainly has uh, a, a role in establishing that these rural areas of England are still represented. So you have, maybe not necessarily de jure, but certainly de facto decentralization in those regions. You don't have it in France, and you don't have it in Russia. You have a strong unitary state. So the reason I bring this up is because, again, you had a, a city-driven revolution in many ways from the bottom up that created this Russian Revolution of 1917, which created the Soviet Union. So let's get back to this issue of America. So you have this listener chime in. He says, you know, I, I love what you say, and I talked to my friend about what you said about counties and, and uh, about states creating counties, and he said, no, 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 the, in this particular case, the counties created or were there before the state. And this is true, but the counties did not create the state. Uh, we had counties in Virginia as when Virginia was a colony, and the counties didn't create the state of Virginia. The state of Virginia, the people essentially created the state of Virginia. The counties were simply uh, <clears throat> subdivisions of the sovereign. And before the revolution, the sovereign was the British Empire, the king. The counties were administrative subdivisions of the colony, and then, of course, the colony directly reporting to the king, because by the time of the revolution in 1775, Essentially, all of the colonies, except one, were royal colonies. So the governor there in these colonies was directly appointed by the king. So the counties were there to administer the will of the king himself. Now, that said, these counties could often serve as hedges between the people of those counties and the royal authority as well. And this continued to work that way in the, to an extent even after the American War for Independence and you had the establishment of states. But these counties can and did block what they considered to be unconstitutional legislation, particularly in Virginia. They did it all the time. And you had uh, British officials, royal governors and others, who would complain about the decentralized nature of these colonies uh, in the British North American colonies. They complained about it constantly. So you did have decentralization. Now you look at uh, where this particular area we're talking about, where this listener chimed in, uh, was dealing with Indiana. And so you had counties in Indiana before you had the formation of the state of Indiana. But of course, all of that at one time was part of Virginia. It was all one county. It was Augusta County, Virginia. And as people moved out there, they began to uh, create these counties and administrative subdivisions. But it was still part of the general government. Uh, and then you had the Indiana Territory, and so you had counties in the territory, and then ultimately the state of Indiana. And the same thing worked in other places as well. But that did not mean that the counties created the state. Of course, they elected delegates out of those counties to go to a convention uh, to draft a constitution, et cetera, et cetera. But the state was the sovereign entity after that, the state itself. And we know this because of the federal nature of the United States government. We have a government a general government that is created by the states. It says so clearly in the U.S. Constitution, in Article 7, the states are the entities that can 
that can amend or even abolish the United States government through, uh, through an Article 5 convention or through the legislatures of the states. They can do this. So they are the creators and they can, uh, in essence, be the destroyers. The same thing works when you get to modern-day counties and cities. Cities exist at the pleasure of the states. The states incorporate the cities. The states can tell the cities if they can sneeze or not. And the counties are essentially the same way. Uh, now, county structure can be a little different, but the state still has to be involved in the creation and organization of the counties. So, the state is the sovereign entity in the sovereign political entity when you're talking about a political subunit in the United States. We can always say the people are sovereign. I mean, this is, this is what we would suggest. But uh, the fact that we have, we have to have government, I mean, some people would say we don't have to have government, but we'd have government, right? So we have government, and the, the most powerful government in the entire American system are the states. Looking at the structure of the U.S. government, the structure of the Constitution, the way things are designed, the states have all the power. They delegate certain powers to the general authority, but yet they retain everything else. And that's an important innovation when you look at, say, Russia or France that doesn't have that particular hedge. They don't have that state. They might have a city that has some local control of things, but there's nothing above that that would serve as a hedge between the center, be it the Russian czar or the French king, and the city itself. You see, so there's nothing there to block that strong central authority, that sovereign, that unitary state, the top-down structure. There's nothing in the middle. And that middle is important. That middle is essential. It's vital, in fact, in the preservation of civil liberties. Because the only power that's powerful enough, the only thing powerful enough to check a government is another government. And so if all you had were city governments to do this, there would not be enough power there. But a state government particularly when you look at our system with our written constitution, the state governments do have enough power to do it. Now, I bring all of this up because this has to deal with decentralization. So when you look at America today and you look at the population of the United States, you look at uh, the representative ratio in the United States, and I've talked about this on this podcast, how it's way out of whack, 700,000 plus to one for your House of Representatives. You don't have any representative government in Washington. Your senators are even worse. Now, the senators are supposed to be there to represent the states by design. That's not what they do anymore, but that's supposed to be what they do. When you look at the original Constitution, the original representative ratio was 30,000 to 1. Now, if we had that, we'd have 10,000 people in the House of Representatives, too large to really do any business. And when you look at the original, the first census taken in the United States, in 1790, there were about 4 million people in the entire United States. The largest state still had less than a million people. Your largest city had about 30,000 people. So you're talking about a much smaller scale than what we have today. That's the population of the state of Alabama. And I'm going to bring up Alabama because I'm, I'm going to talk about Alabama in more detail. So the entire population of Alabama is the same as the population of the United States in 1790. In fact, in the state of Alabama, our representative ratio for our state legislature is about 30,000 to 1. And George Washington considered that to be adequate for representative government. Now, maybe not for the way that we have government in your states. It might even be too large because... If you look at what the states are supposed to do, it's 30,000 to 1 close enough to the people to really have your 
finger on the pulse of what the people want from the government or don't want from the government. If you look at some of the New England states, they actually have an advantage in that states like New Hampshire, for example, has a extremely tiny representative ratio. I want to say theirs is it's somewhere around two or 3,000 to one. So they, they have got great representation in New Hampshire. Whereas California has awful representation. It's something like uh, almost 150,000 to one. So you're looking at a representative ratio in California that's way out of whack. It's too big. So there is a discussion to be had about the states being too large and too unresponsive. There isn't really any representative government, even in the states, to do business. And I've talked about this on, a, on previous episodes of the Brian McClanahan Show. I've looked at uh, you know the ideal republic uh, I've looked at uh, representative ratio. I've talked about these things. Small is beautiful. You can go back and find those episodes. But I want to focus on something that was actually written in the Yellowhammer News. The Yellowhammer News, if you are if you live in Alabama and you don't read the Yellowhammer News, you should read the Yellowhammer News. They've got good stuff in there every now and then. Uh, they've got, um, it's uh, yellowhammernews.com. They've got, uh, they're going to be publishing articles from Mises, so that's nice. Uh, sometimes they're a little bit too neocon on some things. But anyways, they do have some interesting pieces, and it's better than AL.com, which uh, is is just as bad as any mainstream media outlet. AL.com does have some decent stories here and there, just to give you some news, but when you get to the opinion section, it's awful. So I want to focus on this, on this piece that came out uh, about a week ago, and the title is, Would a Birmingham win render majority black cities ungovernable? So I'm going to read this. Okay, This is by uh, Dale Jackson. Dale Jackson is a, uh, has a conservative talk show, quote-unquote, from 7 to 11 a.m. in Huntsville. So uh, this is what he writes, quote, The Alabama legislature and the state's biggest city are never going to truly see eye-to-eye because the politics and the demographics are too different. Now, here is the question. Okay, so we're getting into size. I can agree with this. But when Birmingham decided to increase its minimum wage in 2016, the state legislature asserted its control over the city in a way that many viewed as heavy-handed and anti-conservative. Birmingham pushed back with a lawsuit claiming racial discrimination. A judge blew that up, but the city appealed to a circuit judge. The argument for this case by those who want Birmingham to be able to do their own thing is that as a majority black city, a majority white legislature can't tell them what to do. Now, let's just break that first paragraph down. So what happens is, city of Birmingham passes a minimum wage increase. The state of Alabama says, you can't do that, we're smacking you down. Now, according to the structure of American government, this is perfectly legitimate. In fact, the the state of Alabama could just remove the city of Birmingham's incorporation and, and govern the city itself. Birmingham exists at the pleasure of the state of Alabama. Now, should they have done this? And you look at if the demographic and demographics are different, should we start thinking about maybe two or three states in this broken up in Alabama? Maybe we should think about more states. But certainly, we don't want city control. And that's why I brought up the issue of the Russian Revolution. What we don't want, we want that hedge between the center and and the people, and we don't want to lose that. And if you start looking at what's happening here, the state is already under pressure from the central authority. There's already a loss of federalism. The states are truly in a crisis situation in terms of what they can and cannot do to oppose a central authority. If a federal judge, and this is going to federal court, 
decides the states, the cities can actually pull this nonsense, the states might as well just, uh, just abolish themselves. Because essentially what we're going to have at that point is a Soviet-style or French-style unitary state where the central authority then steps in and becomes the arbiter between a state and any, or a city and anything else. The, the cities then become autonomous, not the states, and the cities then exist at the pleasure of the central authority. This is essentially what you're looking at. In essence, a decision in the wrong way would actually destroy the states and what little bit, bit they have left uh, in their own sovereignty in terms of the modern American political system. This would be an extreme disaster if the city of Birmingham is able to pull this off. Now, I can make a case, even though the minimum wage law is stupid, we can make an economic case all day long, this is a bad idea, but the city of Birmingham should have been allowed to do it uh, and wallow in their own stupidity as the, state, as the city lost jobs and everything else. And uh, Now, the state can say, well, we're going to protect Birmingham from itself. We're going to protect them from their own stupidity, and we're not going to allow this to happen. You could make that case, too. The judges said there's no racial uh, bias here because this, this applied to, at least in this original case, it applied to every city in the state of Alabama. What the city is looking at is that this violates, quote, the equal protection clause of the U.S. Constitution and the non-discrimination provisions of the Federal Voting Rights Act. So, wait a second here. The equal protection clause, as to what? The, the city? <laughs> the city doesn't have equal protection. The city exists at the pleasure of the state. So, Jackson continues... Why this matters. Precedent. If a lawsuit of this nature is successful, the city of Birmingham can literally do whatever it wants. Not only will Birmingham be free to do as it wishes on the minimum wage, but they will also have control over matters of gun control, immigration, and monument protection. All matters the city of Birmingham has signaled they would like to act upon. The real-world impact and diverse ruling for the state of Alabama will be that cities like Montgomery and Selma could make the same argument on law, any law they don't like. What about cities like Detroit and Atlanta? Cities around the country could become completely disconnected from the states in which they live. The laws passed by state legislatures will be undone by city councils, creating a fracture that was seized upon by city leaders and will lead to these cities being states within states. So he's actually getting to the correct interpretation here. Right. They can't do this. It's blowing up the entire federal system, the entire federal structure that is the pillars of the American political system. Cities are not states. Cities exist at the pleasure of the state. Now, again, we can talk about whether we should consider things like this, whether states are too big. We know the United States is too big, but are the states too big? Should we have more local control? Should we have more local autonomy? However, we don't need to abolish the states. And this has been a dream of people on the left for a long time to abolish the states. Because the states have always, in many ways, worked against them. Now, not always. We look at issues like uh, drug legalization and some other things. Uh, we, could, we could take, of course, he brings up some issues. Minimum wage, uh, gun control, immigration, abortion, monument protection, all these things. Some are on the left, some are on the right. Uh, and so the states, this is why the Tenth Amendment is so important. The states do have control over these issues as, the, as I said, the pillars of American government. But what's going to happen here, if the city gets away with this, the states become irrelevant. So when you look at things like immigration, sanctuary cities, sanctuary cities are illegal unless the state says they can do it. 
monument protection. The city of Birmingham put some plywood around a Confederate monument in Birmingham, which violates the state law. And they're saying they can do it because the monument didn't come down. They're just shielding it. But it violates the state law. And so can Birmingham do this? Absolutely not. In fact, I think the city of, Bur- of the city of, of I'm sorry, the state of Alabama should just again remove the incorporation of the city of Birmingham and just say we're going to govern the city ourselves. That's perfectly legal for the state to do it. So what we really need to talk about in America is actually what's going on in California, where there's a discussion of having three states in California, or maybe even the secession of California. But certainly we need to talk about decentralization in that way, but keeping the existence of the states. Because without the states, the entire federal system comes undone. And you would have a situation like the October Revolution of 1917, where you can have radical elements take control of cities. And if the states no longer have a block on the cities, if the states are no longer the hedge between the center and the cities themselves, what's going to stop something like that from happening? So you can have, well, I mean, I, I thought you loved decentralization. Yes, I love it in the federal system that we have where the states have the power, the states have powers, and the central authority has only delegated powers, and the cities exist to the pleasure of the states. Whether you like the state government or not, we can talk about, well, maybe the city should have more. Yeah, sure, we can, we can have that discussion. We can have the discussion of counties and cities having more autonomy. In fact, I think that may not be a bad idea. Uh, maybe having more states would be a better idea. Let's have 100 U.S. states instead of 50. That would be nice. Or let's have 150 or 200 U.S. states instead of 50. Why, does, why do we only have to have 50? What's the point of that? Can't we can't we divide these states further? Couldn't we have an, uh, a, a situation where you did have cities that became states, in essence? Certainly, that would be uh, something to consider. Why can't a state like New York be a city, or a, a city like New York be a state? I should say the other other way. Why can't this? Why can't the city of New York be a state? Why can't the city of Atlanta be a state? I mean, we've had city states before. Why couldn't it be that way? It could, if, if that's what people wanted. We could talk about decentralization and local government, how that might be better for representative government to have these type of subdivisions. And, of course, then you could even find a better place. If you could actually divide up these states into smaller political subdivisions, you could find a place, a home, I'm certain, for you and your political positions. Whether you're on the left or the right, you could do it. The problem is we have too much We do have too much top-down government, but we don't need to get rid of the states because the states have to be there. The states have to be there to block the center. If you take out, if the federal judges come in and say, yeah, Birmingham, you're going to win your case, the states are emasculated. There is nothing left of the states. They've got pressure of them from the top and the bottom, and essentially the general government is saying at that point, well, heck, we create the states, not you. We create the cities, I'm sorry, not you. And, of course, there is the argument that they create the states, too, which is completely preposterous. But that's one of the other arguments of the nationalists. The one people idea, uh, when you have Marshall and Story and others, I mean, I, I take all that apart in my how, like, how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. But that's what this is getting to. We're looking at a movement now, in this case in Birmingham, this is really important, where the states would supersede, would trump, I'm sorry, the cities would supersede or trump the states. That is extremely dangerous for American federalism. Mr. Jackson gets it 100% right when he says we have 
states within states. We don't want that. We don't want that. Now, nullification is is a great idea from state, and there's it only it only supposed to work essentially uh, because you had the original federal structure of the Constitution. That's why nullification is even a, a position because of the Tenth Amendment. There's nothing in the Constitution that says a state can do. I'm sorry, a city can do that. Nothing, uh, because the cities exist at the pleasure of the states. So this is a really interesting position and one that I think we need to have a conversation about the size of states, the importance of decentralization, and how that would work for different populations in America. But at the same time, we need to realize that the states are essential as a hedge between the central authority and the people. The cities can get rather oppressive at times, in fact. Um, some people can make the, I mean, you can make the arguments the states can too, but... Um, the cities can often create problems, and of course, then you do have a way to appeal that to the states. Uh, and the states can also prevent the central authority from harming the citizens. So you have a sovereign. You have the state which can do these things. You don't need to abolish the state, which is what would happen. We don't need another Russian revolution. We don't need an October revolution. We don't need the control of the cities by the Soviets, and then the cities essentially take over the center. That would be disastrous for American liberty. It would be a disastrous for American government. It would be the antithesis of what the founding generation considered to be good government, and not just that, the structure of the United States in terms of the federal republic. Uh, and it's something that we should really watch carefully moving forward because I think you're going to see more stuff like this. And, of course, the way they're using the way they're charging it is using a racial argument here. As the federal judge said, that you can't do that. But the way things are going in America, I wouldn't put it past any federal judge to go beyond his constituted authority, his or her constituted authority, and rule poorly in this particular case. In fact, the judge shouldn't even have, should have just thrown it out because they didn't have standing. The city doesn't have standing to sue in federal court the state, and the state should have just invoked the 11th Amendment and said, we're not going to court. That's state sovereign immunity. Regardless, that's my position on all this. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.